Hello and welcome to the review. I'm Daniel Fuchs. I'm Stephen Gams. And I'm Gedalia May. This is the Ricky, where we keep you up to date on all the latest in clinical research. We know how busy you all are as med students and residents, it's sometimes hard to keep up with all the latest literature. So we're here to review recent research articles in top tier medical journals to keep you up to date. What do we have today? The article I would like to share with you guys today is rather short, but really interesting. In a recently published article on JAMA, the authors investigated the accuracy of blood pressure cuffs. And interestingly, they found that women had significantly higher systolic blood pressures on invasive blood pressure readings while undergoing cardiac catheterization compared to men with similar non-invasive slash brachial cuff blood pressure readings. Meaning that the brachial cuff underestimates a woman's systolic blood pressure, but they are much more accurate in predicting a man's true systolic blood pressure. Just to clarify, if a man and a woman both get the same exact blood pressure reading from a brachial cuff, let's say 160 over 90, the woman's number is, even though it reads the same on the machine, is really worse. So really, she has an increased risk of adverse effects from hypertension. Stephen, why would this be the case? Great question. The authors believe this may be due to differences in height, where shorter height is associated with an underestimate underestimation of the true systolic blood pressure. The authors suggest that this can partially explain why women have greater risks of cardiovascular disease for a given blood pressure cuff measurement. In other words, it is possible that women with elevated systolic blood pressure may go unrecognized and therefore untreated due to deceptively normal brachial cuff blood pressure readings. That's pretty wild. Yep. Scary thought. On to the next. Patients with atrial fibrillation and stable coronary artery disease who have other stroke risk factors meet the criteria for anticoagulation. There are a few choices of how to anticoagulate them. Tell us some choices. So one option is rivaraxaban, which is a factor 10A inhibitor. Another option is antiplatelet agents like clopidogrel or aspirin. Very good. There are others as well, but those are the ones discussed in this article that we have here today from JAMA, June 15, 2022. In this study, the patients were split into two groups. One group got rivaroxaban by itself, and one group got rivaroxaban plus an antiplatelet agent. The study compares the incidence of total cardiovascular and or bleeding events between the two groups. What do you think they found, Gedalia? Well, naturally, rivaroxaban monotherapy was associated with lower risks of total thrombotic and or bleeding events in patients with AFib and stable coronary artery disease, which makes sense since they are anticoagulated less. Exactly. What is interesting to note though, which is less obvious, is that the mortality rate among the people who did bleed was higher than the mortality rate from thrombotic events. Meaning that inevitably some people will bleed and others will clot despite the, medica- the medication but it seems that the ones who bled had worse outcomes compared to, the, to those who clotted. So it seems we should be careful not to over anticoagulate our patients. Next, we will talk about spinal decompression and fusion. Oh boy, my favorite. Could you please briefly explain what decompression and fusion means? Surgical decompression is used to treat compressed nerves and can be done through a laminectomy, discectomy, spinal fusion, or a combination of these techniques. Spinal fusion is where two or more vertebrae 
are permanently connected to improve stability, correct the deformity, or reduce pain. Right. So there was a recent article published in JAMA this past July. Over the last 30 years, decompression and fusion surgery for lumbar spine disorders have increased, with the largest increase in patients 65 years or older. The most frequent indica indication for spinal surgery in older adults is degenerative lumbar spinal stenosis. However, in these patients, studies report inconsistent rates of decompression without fusion. With increased operation rates, this could lead to more revision surgeries, intraoperative and postoperative complications, pain, as well as an increased financial resource burden on healthcare. This study was done in patients with degenerative lumbar spinal stenosis using three-year follow-up data from a prospective cohort study. They assessed the cumulative incidence of revision operations after two types of operations, decompression alone or decompression with fusion. So tell me a bit more about how they did this study. So of the 328 patients included in this study, 256 underwent decompression alone, which consisted of a standard open bilateral decompression or unilateral laminotomy with bilateral decompression of the affected disc levels. The 72 other patients underwent decompression with fusion which consisted of additional implantation of pedicle screws with rods plus intersomatic fusion with cages at the affected disc levels. So what did they find? The cumulative incidence of revision after three years was 11.3% for decompression alone and 13.9% in the fusion group. However, this difference, although it sounds significant, was not found to be statistically significant. Additionally, there was no difference in pain disability, or quality of life between these two groups. So Daniel, what are you pondering today? Well, because we were talking about these orthopedic surgeons stuff, and you know, it got me thinking about this. It's a question to ponder that you should go ask your local orthopedic surgeon about. The question is what to do about the PCL in a total knee replacement. Should you keep the PCL? Should you take it out? What even happens to it? Where's it go? Should it go somewhere? Apparently, it's not so clear. Who knew? Anyhow, ask your uh, local orthopedic surgeon. And that's all we have for you today, folks. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at therickyteam at gmail.com. Follow us on Spotify, Instagram, and Facebook at The Rick Team. As always, thanks for listening.